Hi everyone and welcome back to another edition of our Best of Top Traders series where we share segments that we love and that we think you will enjoy and find valuable. My name is Niels Kastrolarsen and today I want to share with you some uh, hard learned lessons and other learnings from quant expert Robert Seinert where he shares his in-depth knowledge of the modern evolution of systematic trading in the form of machine learning amongst others and how machine learning has affected and impacted their short-term and long-term strategies. If you would like to hear the full episode, of course, you can listen to it by all means by going to toptradersunplugged.com forward slash 99. Without further ado, here's Robert Seinert with some unique insights to machine learning. So Rob, not to use the the common buzzword in our our field, but it sounds like you're using in adaptive that you may be using some machine learning type approaches. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? And what is your background with machine learning and how do you think about it in this space? When, so it's absolutely machine learning. And I think you're right that machine learning is this incredible buzzword today. Uh, and for many people, it's not something that they really ran into more than a year or two ago. My background is in statistics. My background is in statistics. And I got my degree in statistics back before statistics was a sexy field. When I was an undergrad, I was one of two statisticians in the field. I had a faculty-teacher ratio of one to five one being the undergrad, five being the fact. That's actually why I went into statistics, truth be told. In statistics, in machine learning, in decision theory, many of these concepts that are talked about actually got their start in, in the 70s, in the 60s, even in the 50s, where a lot of the nuance has come today or where a lot of the excitement has come today is in where and how they're applied, in what data sets they're applied to, and to what degree you can automate and systematize the application of these tools. Machine learning is a toolbox. To say we use machine learning to to build our algorithms is kind of like saying, I use tools to build a house. It's not really additive in terms of your understanding. So let me break that down. Let's let's talk about what actually we do with machine learning. And before we go into it, go into the tools that we use, which I think are really interesting, let me also break down to the problems that we try to solve. Because I think there's a lot of hype about machine learning, and I think that there are some kinds of problems where there's a lot of potential for growth, and I think that there's some kinds of problems that regardless of the amount of machinery that you throw at them are still going to be a challenge and are still going to be a source of where people who are are, are well-versed in the machines and specifically their limitations will be able to still add value as humans rather than just automatons. So when we think about machine learning, I would say that there are two kinds of problems. You have what you could think of as classification problems or as what I like to call as stationary problems, meaning that the problem that you're working on doesn't change over time. Great example. Google has come out with a lot of of really interesting results and a lot of really impressive fast algorithms for identifying various things in, in videos and images. Like, you go back 10 years and it was a really hard thing to identify a cat in a photo. Now it's a really trivial thing. In fact, you can do that for arbitrary objects. You can just go online and there are online classifiers that allow you to make these decisions. One of the 
very, very early uses of these things were in financial markets were things like counting cars in parking lots or identifying cars in parking lots or identifying the levels of, of oil in, in silos or, or trying to predict crop yields, things like these. Those kinds of questions where it doesn't matter how many people are looking at the field to identify if is this is going to be a good forecast or a bad forecast, or going to be a, a high-yield crop or a low-yield crop, that doesn't change the success of, of detection of that yield. It doesn't matter how many people are looking at whether or not that's a cat in, in the video or a cat in the image, that doesn't change your success rate. That's a static problem. And the more data you can throw at it, the more training samples that you can throw at the problem, the better your algorithm will be up to some asymptotic. What are the challenges there? Well, the challenges there are abundance of features. You know, the more things you know about, potentially know about a data set, the harder it is to glean what's true. Also noise. The more noisy a data set, the more, the more pixelated an image, for example, the harder it's going to be to get your answer. But again, the more data that you have, the more training samples you have, the better your algorithm will be in the end. There's a second kind of problem. And that's unfortunately the problem that we typically have in trying to forecast financial markets. So again, in the first case that you can do machine learning for yield discovery, you can do it for forecasting earnings, you can do it for trying to predict the number of SKUs that will be sold by a retailer. Those are all great things. Those are all classification problems. Those are all stationary. But when you start trying to answer the question, well, this earnings level and this book value and this momentum indicator and this sentiment out of the CEO on his earnings call, what does that mean about the return that's going to happen between today and tomorrow? That's a much harder question because there's a feedback loop. The more people trying to answer that question and the better their answer is, the less relevant it is in figuring out where it's going to go tomorrow. That is to say, the solution to the problem, the more people looking at the problem, make that problem harder and may make the features that you used to think were useful in making your prediction no longer useful because they've been fully priced in. And so as a result, you have this, this competition, this, this, this fight to be first, this fight to be right among lots of intelligent people in the market is going to make something that means that whatever you design for the second kind of problem, this forecasting problem, is going to disappear over time. And so it may have been that in the past, you know, simple value signals or, or, or value pricing in equities may have been very successful at, price, at determining the, the direction of markets. Or a more uh, concrete example, if you were to go back to the 80s and 90s, simply knowing which direction the price moved over the last five days or 10 days was a really good indication of where price was going to move over the next five days. It was, you know, a sharp two or sharp three strategy, depending on how good your transaction costs were. That simply isn't the case anymore. And so the balance that we have to fight is because of the second category of problem. It's whatever we think we know may work for some time, but then that will decay. As more people figure out the things that we figured out, even if we did have forecasting power before, we may not have forecasting power tomorrow. And it's a, so it's not just model overfit. You, there are lots of problems with model overfit, especially in noisy data like financial data, but it's also model decay. And it's this evolution of market participants that will make things that used to work cease to work. At the same time, if people stop paying attention to these particular features, 
things that used to not work may also start to work again. But that's the challenge that we see today. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's very, very interesting, actually, field and, and not a field I know a lot about, I have to uh, admit. But I kind of posed the same question a few months ago when I was interviewing the founders of of AHL. And, and to my surprise, both uh, David Harding and Marty Lurik and, and I think Mike Adam uh, as well, actually, they... They, they didn't sound sort of too overly enthusiastic about sort of artificial and intelligence. And actually, to some extent, from, from memory, they were talking about, well, in a sense, we, we already have that because each of our brains, each participant in the market, you know, kind of makes up that, you know, uh, structure. And, 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 and to break it down in a very simple way for me is, of course, that I think of it as the more the machines, the more examples it, it sees, it kind of, it, it, it learns more and more, but it learns more and more from, from what's happening, you know, in the recent history. And we know that things constantly change and might even go back. You know, we don't have this kind of data from 50 or 100 years ago, but actually to some extent you could argue that markets go back and replicate themselves into how things worked 50 or 100 years ago. It doesn't always have to be new change. It could be changed back to the way it were. So how do you overcome all of that? How do you make it work? <laughs> I, I would actually agree with them to a large extent. I think that, as I gave with that example, I think that you can very easily overdo it mm. with machine learning. I think you can very easily overfit your yeah. process. And that overfitting can come from just finding noise and thinking it's signal, or it can come from decaying of these attributes. Right. And the things that we're detecting, the things that we're allowing our models to adjust to, are generally fairly slow-moving features. These are not things that are going to change from one month to the next. These are features that are going to develop and disappear over the course of years. Anything shorter than that, and we have no hope of detecting and having any sense of confidence in it. The difference is, the way we design our models is that we design them so that they can, those algorithms can, shape those particular nuances between markets, but that they have a common structure and have common constraints and common features across markets that we know, in some sense, hold economic value or have some economic truth to them. So again, putting my, my statistician's hat on, my, building my, my model builder's hat on, when you have an infinitely wide dimensional uh, feature space, you know, anything can go into to forecasting any market, potentially, and you have only so much data. You know, suppose we have 40 years of data. Well, congratulations, you have 10,000 data points on a daily basis. And yes, you could chop it up second to second or minute to minute, but for most of the things we're talking about, especially for momentum and trend following, it's not going to be additive. It's the autocorrelation is too high of the signal. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this short insightful clip from a past episode of the show, then you will love the new free book that I'm giving away right now. 
It's called the many flavors of trend following and includes some of my best insights on this perhaps the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. You can get a free copy at toptradersonplug.com forward slash book right now to start your own investment journey today. Just go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book. And make sure to come back to the podcast or my YouTube channel next week for more exciting and engaging conversations.